Well, I am just so thankful for our church and for the blessing of the privilege and blessing to be one of the pastors here at First Baptist Church. I'm not sure if you were able to read our uh, monthly newsletter, but I just want to pass on just my gratefulness um, on behalf of me and the family for just the kind generosity shown by our church through Pastors Appreciation Month. And um, it really is, you know, it's just, I'm so thankful. Just thinking a little bit about when I came in 2019 um, for the candidating weekend this past week. And um, coming up here on three years uh, as being your pastor uh, here at the end of this year. And it is just a joy and privilege of my life to be called here to Gallatin to shepherd the flock of God here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin alongside Pastor Wood. And I'm just really thankful for y'all. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful that I get to stand up here and preach. I'm thankful that you provide well for, for us to be able to give our life to the ministry of the word in a variety of settings. Thank you, church. I can't believe Thanksgiving is this coming Thursday, which means next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent as well. And for those of you who don't like this kind of thing, I've already put up Christmas tree in the house, and I should say my wife and kids have decorated well inside. Not outside yet, okay? That'll, that'll wait till after Thanksgiving. And the, the girls came by this past week and uh, decorated my office as well. So we're excited for Thanksgiving. We're excited for the Christmas season. And we're just really, really thankful. So all the songs today, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. I just wanted to start here before we open up the word, giving thanks uh, for you, church. But today, we're going to see from our passage the transfer or the handoff, if you will, of kingdom power and authority as our series title here in Matthew 8 through chapter 17 indicates, from Jesus to the 12 apostles. Of course, Jesus still had it. He didn't give it away and and lose it himself, but he's giving a handoff to his 12 apostles or his 12 farmers. But, But before we see that, I want to read again the prayer request that we saw the last time we were in our series before we get to God's answer or one of God's answers to that prayer in our passage in Matthew 10 today. We're going to start back in Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38 to see that again. Remember, this passage was that the farmer's nightmare, not enough workers to bring in the harvest. That's what we saw. Let's see it again as we begin in Matthew 9 and verse 35. And Jesus went through the cities and villages and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep Without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly 
to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And let's pray. Father, we echo this prayer to you, the Lord of the harvest. We see the urgency of it. We see the need of you to intervene and work in ways that we just cannot do on our own. We ask that you would answer these prayers. We ask that we would have these prayers on our hearts. And Lord, we just come to you, looking to you, to see from your word truths that encourage and sharpen and correct and clarify our thinking as Christians. Show us even in this passage, this answer to prayer, this oh-so-urgent prayer. Would you direct and guide and show us today? We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw last time that Jesus looked around him, and with a look, he saw sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved to pity and compassion. He saw this plentiful harvest with too few workers. But with this nightmare, you see, comes with it a magnificent and wonderful and evident turn of events. Like the 2020 playoff game the Chiefs played against the Texans. You remember that one? Down four scores in the first quarter. It was 24 to nothing. It didn't look very good. It looked very dire. And there was no hope, it seemed, in that game. But then, of course, you all know the story, don't you? I don't have to tell you. They charged back to come back in this incredible win against uh, the Texans that day. They went off to win the next week and then make it to the Super Bowl. And of course, the rest is history to win the championship for Kansas City. It looked lopsided. It looked like there wasn't any hope. So in a similar way here, from this hopelessness and this huge sense of being overwhelmed with more gospel work than gospel farmers to get it done. It didn't look good. To what we're going to see here today in our passage, the immediate answered prayer of the Lord of the harvest to provide laborers to give the 12 gospel farmers. A real turnaround we're going to see today. And we're going to see today that God called, prepared, and trained, and even sent gospel farmers according to his plan, and he gave them a mission. Let's see it from our text and our first point in number one. Let's see the 12 farmers in Matthew 10 and verses 1 through 6. We saw the prayer request. Now let's see the answer in verse 1. He called them, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, the disciples prayed for gospel farmers, and the Lord of the harvest answered that prayer by providing, initially here, answering that prayer there, by providing these 12 very important gospel farmers out into the harvest. You see that answered prayer. Have you ever wondered if God answers prayers? Have you ever just thought, what's the point? It seems like nothing is happening. Kind of get discouraged in your prayers. I want us to be encouraged here that if we pray according to the will of God and align ourselves with what he desires and loves and tells us to pray for, he answers our prayers. See it right here. You saw it as we read it. There is a major problem of gospel farmer shortage. We saw the problem. That's an issue. It's a nightmare. And right after the disciples pray, what happened? God answers by sending them into the harvest. During our last prayer service, we prayed for the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers that Sunday evening. And in just this past week, I heard of a report of a dear sister in Christ, our dear sister in Christ, Sharon Burke, having the opportunity to present the gospel to an unbeliever who was conscience guilt-ridden at the question of whether or not he was going to hell. Sharon, she seized that opportunity to share the good news of the gospel of hope with this man. And lo and behold, praise the Lord, he trusted Jesus and was saved. Amen? Amen. Be excited about that. What a blessing. What good news. What the Lord is doing. Look, do you see the connection to our praying for the Lord of the harvest even at our last prayer service? An answered prayer. God loves, you see, to answer prayers that he charged us to pray. We're to pray for these things. It's not, should we pray for more workers and for people to go out to the harvest and share the good news or not? No, it's not like maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. We do not have to be conflicted. We can be a lot of conflicted about God's will for our life. What should I do? How should I live? But there are some things that are so clear that we, could, we don't even have to doubt. Praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to do gospel ministry, to send out gospel farmers for people to be saved, for people to be sent. That's a no-brainer, right? That's a prayer that God wants us to pray. And the Lord answers prayers like that. We can add to this answered prayer here that we just shared. Anyone else who might have been at that prayer service that Sunday evening who then went out and had it on their radars to share the gospel with an unbeliever who they themselves shared the gospel. And anyone else in our church who might have heard about and shared the gospel even that time as we were praying for you even if you weren't at that prayer service. We can see a direct answered prayer in the way that the Lord works in that way. Look, if we pray for 
what God loves and cares about, we will respond even ourselves in the doing of the things and the living and the thinking about these things in the way that we're praying as well. Do you see how that works? Do you see that the heart that is moved to pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest field is the same kind of Christian heart that is leaning in and wanting to do that very sharing of the gospel themselves. And even that is an answered prayer. Do do you see that? But I want us also to realize here within this passage as we're reading here that we have a unique situation in biblical history going on in this text that we just read. As one pastor put it, it's the most significant ordination service ever. I would add, behind the affirmation of the father of his son, Jesus Christ, at his baptism and that sending of Jesus out into the ministry and his earthly ministry, only behind that, the sending out of the 12 apostles, you see, it's just this really, really big deal and monumental commissioning in biblical history. What we're seeing here is not just some other story, but this is a foundational story, the root of our faith, even. Because no one else today bears the name apostle, even if somebody claims that. Apostle are are, are not walking around today. These men were uniquely called by Jesus and lived and walked and learned directly from Jesus in his earthly ministry. I've got news for everybody here. There's nobody around today that has that on their, their resume. Nobody else walked and lived and talked and learned directly from Jesus. And it's interesting in that list that we just read of 12 apostles that we know a lot about some of these 12, but then there's others there that we kind of have very little information about, right? We don't know as much about the others. For instance, we know Peter, right? We can't miss Peter in the Bible. He's all over the New Testament and even wrote letters that we have in the New Testament. Uh, And it's noteworthy that Peter, in all of these lists, is always listed first because he's kind of a key leader amongst the apostles. But uh, on the other hand, we know very little about Bartholomew, don't we? And we know a whole lot about James and John also, right? Because Peter, James, and John were in that inner circle with Jesus, as we see. But we don't know as much about Andrew, Peter's brother. And we we know all about Judas as he was infamous, and later he was replaced by Matthias after his death. But we we only know a little bit, we know less about, about Philip. But God used them all as their gifts of the church. We're being blessed by the work of these 12 gospel farmers to this very day. Many years later, they're gifts to the church. Don't miss that. And all of them are imperfect men, but mightily used by God. Judas, of course, is kind of the one asterisk in that that group because he defected, right? But even he was used, even as he had evil motives, because God had a bigger plan for good in that whole mess of Judas's situation. Notice that Judas's name, even in Judas's shame, 
is always listed last. We see him listed last there. In all the other lists, he's listed last as well. There's a reason for that. He had to be replaced by a godly man. But all of these apostles, you see, these were big deals, used in significant ways uh, nonetheless. All of them, this was a big moment, commissioning and sending of these apostles. And then though there was many, many disciples at the time here, many followers of Jesus, there were only a few apostles tasked and sent in this unique way. Only 12 of them. They are part of the foundation of the church, of course, second only to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The apostles were sent by the authority of Jesus even to do what Jesus did with the power and authority that Jesus had. Their situation here is unique. It's not something that's just kind of repeated over and over again in the same way. I want us to look at it and see there's something unique and wonderful going on here, something foundational. For instance, you see here that they were tasked in this early stage of gospel farming to go directly to specific cities that were primarily consisting of Jewish people. Did you pick up on that when we read the text? For as Paul says in Romans 1, to the Jew first... And then also to the Gentile or the Greek, right? You see that there is an order in his plan and his mission. Or in Acts 1.8, you see the strategic missionary advancement from Jewish territories out through the entire world to go to Gentiles as well later. And we all know about the Great Commission at the end of this book in Matthew 28, right, where Jesus is pushing that mission to all nations and, and all people groups, not just to the Jews. But let's see here just... Historically, in the context, they had to start somewhere, right? There's a strategy, an intentional plan of God going on here in this passage. As the faithful preacher James Montgomery Boyce said, no one can do everything at once, and that the obvious starting place for their work was Galilee, where the disciples already were. You see that? The Restriction would have kept them from wandering either to the Gentile territories to the north and east or to, into Samaria to the south. It would be like Jesus is saying, as he later did, we see in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, see Kind of first, and only after you've done that in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as we see in Acts 1.8. Now, We will see also this unique mission and power that Jesus gave to his 12 apostles in the next point as well. There's something wonderful going on here, but I hope you can see here that the context of Jesus' commissioning of these 12 unique gospel farmers has some limits on what we might directly apply to ourselves today. Since we are not all apostles here in this room and nobody else is outside of it. So just as a point of reading our Bibles, it's helpful to learn to accurately interpret and apply the Scriptures because it's key for us to avoid unbiblical conclusions like saying, for instance, that there's a bunch of living apostles today like some denominations and religions put forward, cults put forward, or somehow unbiblically limiting our ministry. If we just took this passage, we might be tempted to unbiblically limit our ministry, for instance, only to the Jews, which was right here at this time for the apostles 
to do at that time for strategic purposes because of what Jesus told him, but it would be wrong for us to do today as we have orders now to go out to all the nations, both Jews and Gentiles. You see, when we're reading, we have to make some of these clarifications, but I want us to see that Jesus calls these men, he trains them in the school of discipleship as he was their teacher and their model. They saw these things from him. They saw Jesus heal directly with their own eyes. They saw him deliver men and women from demons with their own experience. They saw him raise the dead. Now they were called to do what they saw Jesus do, which moves us on to our second point and number two, the farmer's mission. Let's see this mission of the 12 apostles now in verses five to 10. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, we saw this already, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff. For the laborer deserves his food. Jesus gives very specific directions here to the apostles in this short-term mission trip, if you will. This is the first missionary endeavor that they are sent out on, and Jesus is teaching them before they go out. You see that? He's giving direction. He's equipping and preparing them and directing them as a sergeant directs his troops or the farm owner directs his employees or the boss instructs his or her workers. You see what Jesus is doing there. How does Jesus respond to that compassionate look and gaze over the lost sheep that we saw the last time? What does he do? How does he respond? Something happens in response. Does he just sulk over the fact that there are sheep without a shepherd? Or does he do something about it? We just read it. What What does he do? To be sure, Jesus has a plan, and his plan is fulfilled by doing what? Sending out shepherds to the lost sheep of Israel, farmers into that plentiful harvest. You see Jesus acting according to the people's good to meet this need through the 12 farmers here. His compassion and his pity is not only met with mere sadness and sulking or helplessness, as it was a sad sight to behold, not at all. Jesus responds to helpless lost sheep with what? A plan and an answer that he directly came up with and that he implemented. What an amazing savior. What a great plan. Prayer to the Lord of the harvest led directly to sending out harvesters by Jesus himself to what Jesus had been doing himself. Now other people would do what he was doing. We've been seeing in this series the last few months Jesus is amazing and powerful, authoritative ministry, helping hurting people. We saw 10 miracles. Nine of those were miracles of healing of people in in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Jesus is a mighty and wonderful Savior, a powerful Lord. Look what he did. Look at the amazing things that he did, helping hurting people. The apostles are now sent out to carry 
out and carry on that ministry in a unique way. And just as Jesus' miracles authenticated his ministry, it showed that he was the Messiah because the Messiah was going to be doing all these wonderful things. The 12 apostles' miracles authenticated their ministry, their unique ministry as well. And since there's no longer apostles and King Jesus is resurrected and is at the right hand of the Father, there's no longer any need to authenticate kind of this apostolic ministry in this way today. I want you to see that because some people and some teachers and some ministries lean in to that kind of thing and they kind of try to rob from the amazing power and unique authority that Jesus and the apostles had by trying to mimic them in ways that are far less, far, far, far less than any of these real deal ministers of the gospel and the real deal Messiah himself. So once again, we see something unique here. We can't read this text and say that now we are to go out into Gallatin, for instance, and heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. (laughs) There's a reason Why, if you look in our bulletin, these actions are not mentioned as the mission of our church here at Commitments at First Baptist Church of Gallatin. We are committed to expository preaching, which is what we're doing here now, intentional discipleship, and the Great Commission, not dead-raising, leper-cleansing, and demon-casting. Why? That was their unique, special, foundational mission. And as John MacArthur put it, their mission was unique. But we, you see, he says, carry out the gospel ministry today, not by raising dead physically, but by raising the dead spiritually through gospel preaching and evangelism. Miracles are going on as unbelievers are given spiritual life from death. That is our calling. That is our ministry. Now, does this mean that people can't be healed ever? The miracles can't happen today? That we shouldn't pray for these things? Not at all. Doesn't mean that. That's not what I'm saying. But we don't, I want us to see, have living apostles today who are specifically tasked with this kind of unique ministry. Does that make sense to clarify some of these things? We can and should pray for healing and help and deliverance. Wherever there's a need, we should pour into it. We should pour our hearts to it. We should do that. But we're not apostles with this unique ministry that they and Jesus had. We have to be clear here, or else we're going to get all out of whack and confused like the many so-called prosperity faith healing preachers that they, they do today. They lead many astray in their wake. And I'm warning you as your pastor to be careful for that thing. And I also want us to see how we are to read and grasp the context of Scripture and, and get excited about this foundational work, not getting it mixed up with these fake Imitations that we see sometimes in ministries today. Jesus and the apostles were unique, and they had this specific calling. And notice, Jesus wanted his apostles to get on the road quickly on the short-term missions trip, to travel light and depend on the generosity and giving of the saints along the way. Did, Did you pick up on that? Fellow believers and godly people to provide for their need on this short-term missions trip that they were on. See this connection, church. God has always intended believers who are benefiting from the ministry of gospel ministers, whether it's these initial apostles that we saw or early church pastor missionaries like 
Timothy and Titus, or even the Apostle Paul himself, God has always intended Christians to provide for the daily needs and sustenance of those leaders to these genuine believers by these genuine believers. Because a worker, it says here, is worthy of his bread or his food or his keep. And, and those who, who work in these ways and serve others, the people being served are to provide for those needs. We see this even here in the early ministry uh, here as the 12 are sent out to the house of Israel. So you see here, the, practically speaking, the apostles could travel light because God would provide through these believers on the way. They didn't have to worry about gathering a bunch of food and clothing and things because God would care for their needs in their mission while they were doing it. Look at how God provides. I want you to see that we have a wise God who thinks of everything. He cares for gospel ministers through the cooperation of believers who benefit from the ministry of these gospel farming teachers and leaders. He did it then. He does it today. The, the apostles taught them about the mission of the kingdom and about the kingdom of God. They, they healed them. They raised the dead. They cleansed lepers. They cast out demons just like Jesus did. They did Christ-centered, biblical, Jesus-like ministry that we've been seeing in chapter 8 and 9. And they did that all out of love for God and the good of the people that they were ministering to, not to store up wealth and get a lot of gold as we see here. That wasn't what their focus should have been, and it wasn't. But this doesn't mean that they were not provided for by the people, because they were. Rather, God, you see, he provided for them through the generosity of other believers who esteemed and appreciated their biblical ministry. And though this instruction, church, is unique to this group of people with the short-term missions trip here, these 12 apostles, I think it's important to see the connections here that God still cares for gospel ministry through the generosity of the saints. And I'm so glad that our church, as I mentioned before, as I'm thankful to you all, thankful for the way that you're obedient to that principle and you've been historically obedient to that principle to provide well for the need of gospel ministers here in Gallatin over the years to this very day. Praise God for that. But what about the people as they went out on this ministry? What about the people who didn't support the ministry, who didn't want to help provide and who didn't want to listen, those who did not like the apostles, kind of the haters. What about the haters out there? If Jesus had haters like the scribes and Pharisees of these religious leaders, as we've been seeing over and over again, haven't we seen it? You can't miss it in Matthew 8 and 9. If Jesus had them, certainly the apostles would run into the same kind of thing in their ministry, wouldn't they? And Jesus, very brilliantly here and very wisely here, he gave instructions also on what they should do in response to these haters. And now this leads us to our last and final point, and number three for this, the farmer's curse. Let's see it in verses 11 through 15. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. 
Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The farmer's curse. This reminds us, doesn't it, of the town that kicked Jesus out after Jesus kicked out the many legion of demons into the pigs there in that town. Jesus didn't stay there. Why? Jesus moved on. You remember that? Why? Because they were wicked and they wanted Jesus to go. They kicked him out of their town. Now, there will certainly be wicked towns and people who will also want to kick out these 12 apostles, these 12 farmers as well as they go out. So it's good that Jesus mentioned it, right? People who will not believe their message of the kingdom, who will get maybe jealous and annoyed by their mighty miracles and good deeds, just as they got jealous and annoyed by Jesus before them. You see, Jesus thinks of it all. Jesus knew directly how to handle that kind of thing, but the apostles might not have, and so he's teaching them. The curse here, of course, is not a curse on the gospel farmers, okay? But it's a curse on those who reject the gospel farmers and their message. Do you see that in the passage? If, rather, when they inevitably run into opposition and haters out there, Jesus tells them not to stick around and waste their time with those who strongly oppose them, but to do what? Instead, to move on to other people who will welcome them into their homes with hospitality and who will want to listen to their teaching and who love the good news of the gospel. You see how practical this is. This is gonna be direct payoff for them as they go out into the mission. Jesus says, if someone opposes you, (coughs) leave and go to believers who will accept your message. Before you leave the hater's house, pronounce a curse on them by dusting off your feet when you leave. This is a practice that they would have been familiar with before Jesus directed them here. They they understood that kind of dusting feet off thing. This is a practice was to dust off the feet after leaving unclean Gentile places because they wanted to avoid any connection with the uncleanliness and godlessness of those areas. But I want us to see here what's quite amazing. Jesus flips the script and says, When you go into these Jewish territories and these Jewish homes of men and women who are part of the ethnic people of God, and if they reject the gospel message of the kingdom, and many of them would, Jesus already ran into many who was was rejecting this message. Jesus is shockingly giving them direction to treat these Jewish homes who reject the message as if they were godless Gentiles heathen because they are acting godless themselves by rejecting them and their gospel message. They're pronouncing judgment upon them. Now, I don't know about you, church, but I would not want to be among the people in history who had the apostles dusting their feet off when they left. Do you? Oh, oh, wow. These people are in a unique and grave situation, the gravest. Now, of course, all of them are dead now. None of them survived over 2,000 years when the disciples went on that short-term missions trip here. But you better believe 
that they had to apply this instruction of Jesus and that they dusted their feet off of some during their mission here, this short trip that they did, and even in missionary journeys into the future. You know that this happened because there was a lot of opposition. Jesus teaches us here, did you see it? But hell is gonna be worse for them than even for the sexually immoral people in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. They were seeking to have sexual relations with angels at Lot's home. The Sodom and Gomorrah is about as bad of a city that you could think of. Wicked, the worst of the worst. Like uh, the most seedy place in Las Vegas, magnified by a thousand. This was a wicked town. And it's rather known infamously for its vile, terrible Nasty ways. The point here is not that Sodom and Gomorrah was somehow not that bad. Oh, it was terrible, heinous, wicked. Judgment coming. Judgment given. Judgment coming to people and practicing things like that. But you know what's worse? You want to know what's even worse and more heinous and wicked and worthy of a ton of judgment than all that? It's those people who rejected the gospel of Jesus and his gospel farmers who stirred up all kinds of hostility for godly ministers of the gospel and these apostles were surely godly messengers and ministers and farmers of the gospel. Jesus teaches here in this second discourse in Matthew we saw the first discourse, didn't we? Discourse just means like a teaching or a sermon. We, we know the first discourse. What was the first discourse in Matthew 5 through 7? You, you know it. It's so famous. We spend many weeks in it. You're all thinking of it. Nobody has to blurt it out. If you want, you can. But of course, we know the first teaching, first sermon. That is the Sermon on the Mount. This discourse now, this teaching, this sermon even, which is referred to some as the Sermon on Mission, reveals not only that there are degrees of punishment even in hell, it's more tolerable for them than it is for you. You see the degrees. You see he's saying, you're worse than them. You see that. You see that. And there's all over the Scriptures. You see aspects of that. But it also shows us that the most heinous thing that anyone could ever do is to reject Jesus Christ and his gospel message and other messengers that are coming to give the gospel of good news to them as well. Or by, you know, these farmers, these initial 12 farmers, their ministers seen here, given the instructions of Jesus in the second sermon to go out, proclaim these things that they reject them, that is a wicked and heinous thing for them to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really struck by the words that I see in here in this passage about the intensity about which Jesus spoke about his opponents of the kingdom. Nowadays, we can think of all these other things as really, really, really bad, but people who are careless about Jesus and about the gospel and things of that nature, if they're just good, upstanding citizens and seem kind of nice or whatever, we don't really pay them much attention. We don't really worry about them sometimes. I'm not saying all of us, but sometimes we can get lulled in to a kind of sleep and not realize what's at stake here in the big picture. There's an urgency, there's an intensity. Jesus was intense in his opposition to the religious leaders who opposed him. 
And he was also so intense here about the people who will oppose those he sent out, these gospel farmers as well. Do you know people who have rejected with a stiff arm Jesus and the gospel and the message? You know people like that in your mind who might be upstanding citizens but do not trust and love Jesus who reject it, who want to change the subject, who want nothing to do with Jesus. You know people like that. Do you see the urgency and the stakes here? I think it's safe to say that we would not want to be listed with those that oppose Jesus and his gospel uh, from him with his gospel or from those gospel messengers because it is a weighty thing to come under this kind of curse and judgment that's even worse than what Sodom and Gomorrah has coming to them. This is not light. This is not just whatever. This is intense. This is serious. I think it's appropriate for us also to warn people today who hear the good news of the gospel of the kingdom not to turn away from it and reject it and fight against it because there's weighty things going on in that transaction today as well and through all history. To reject its messengers, to reject the message because judgment is coming to those who reject Jesus and his message that gospel farmers all over are given even to this very day. Do you see that? Do you see the urgency of it? I think it's also appropriate for us to let go at times of godless, hostile opponents and ensure that we are leaning in to provide gospel ministry and hope to those who love it and who want to receive it, who are growing from it, and even to dust off our feet, so to speak, to those who hate it and reject it. We should not waste our time with those who continually show that they want nothing to do with godly ministry. Not that we wouldn't continue to pray for them. Not that we wouldn't continue to give uh, gospel realities to them as we go. But you see here, Jesus is prioritizing leaning into those who are receiving it and who are loving it. Sometimes ministries and people can get so hung up on all the haters out there and they neglect the sheep. They neglect those who want to grow in their pursuits in these other ways. Sometimes we have to move on in those ways because other people need and love what God intends, the word of God, and we need to give it to them. There's an urgency there as well to focus on those who receive it and moving on sometimes from those who reject it. Maybe someday they will repent and believe and love these things into the future, but uh, for now we can pray for them And we should lean into those who are receptive to the gospel message while praying for those obstinate abusers and attackers and uh, those who are against. Because if not but for the work of God and transforming their heart, it's going to continue in those ways. I think there's something to glean here from what Jesus and his wisdom put forward. Don't get me wrong. We, we pray for, we reach out, we do share the gospel with the law. Even the really hostile, we don't give up hope because God could still save them. But I think there's a principle here for us to prioritize. We want to prioritize people who are gonna benefit and grow from the ministry. It was true then. I think there's good gleaning truths for us here now as well. Hopefully, you if you're here listening or watching online, hopefully you're someone who loves and appreciates and listens and follows good gospel, biblical ministry, who loves Jesus and what he did. And if that's you, and I know it's many of us here, 
I encourage you to continue to support that ministry and be blessed in it and grow in it. That's what God wants for you. That's why God provided in these ways. He cares about that. He cares about you. But if not, if that's not you, beware. As there is a judgment coming for you that is worse than that of even the likes of Sodom and Gomorrah because as Jesus sent them in response to a direct prayer request to the Lord of the harvest, do you see when we pray for that and people go out and people share the gospel, that direct prayer request being answered by the Lord of the harvest, how evil and wicked it is for those to reject this message and to reject his messengers. Do, do you see how wrong that is? God is providing and answering prayer and people are just wanting nothing to do with this biblical ministry. Beware if that's you. The time to jo- trust the gospel message is now, church. The harvest is plentiful, but if you are rejecting the good gospel message and his messengers, then that means that you are right now under God's fearful judgment. Fearful judgment. But it's not too late for you, if that describes you, to turn from your obstinate ways even if you've rejected this message before, even if you've rejected it your whole life. This today is just one more opportunity for you to accept now before it's too late, to care now before it's too late, to pursue, to support, to get behind this now before it's too late. For it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for that infamous city than it will be for you if you're rejecting the message of the kingdom right now. Be warned. Don't leave here under that kind of weighty judgment, but I urge you again, trust in King Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, oh, we bow in submission to your plan and your message and your direction. We're thankful, Lord, that you answer prayer, that you answered it even back then in sending out these 12 gospel farmers for the ministry that you cared about, that you sent them to, that you equipped them for, that you prepared them, and that you even demonstrated through Jesus. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you did then. Thank you for how that's made an impact to this very day in gospel farmers all over, even in this room. People sharing the gospel of good news with those who don't yet believe it. Lord, we pray eagerly, urgently, because the stakes couldn't be higher for those who have rejected and currently are rejecting gospel ministry, gospel ministers, gospel reality. Oh, Lord, would you convict them to turn from their sins and trust in your son alone for salvation? Would you help them to see the urgency before it's too late? Would you cause them by your power and work to trust you even for the very first time, even this very day. We believe that you can do it. We pray that you would do it. And we pray all these things in the confident name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.